0: Do you remember when, like, the internet came into your life? God, yes. It was. It was the, the beginning of the end. <laughs> Super Bunny Hop, with over 400,000 subscribers, is known to many as one of the most prominent channels for investigative video game journalism and analysis. But what led George Whitman into this unusual career path? I am Alex, and this is Genesis. How early in your lives did video game became a thing for you?
1: I got a cousin's hand-me-down NES during some of the years where that console started seeming like low technology that was behind the curve of what the other kids were playing at the time. And in retrospect, the difference between playing NES games from the 80s during the N64 era of the 90s doesn't seem like that big of a gap in raw years, but in retrospect when looking back at just how much technology changed going from the 80s to the 90s, there was a lot of a different mood to what a video game felt like in those years compared to the 80s. Like a lot of the audience had changed and just being able to bridge across that gap at such a young age at like like 10 Being able to play stuff and appreciate stuff that seemed old and dusty and obsolete during a time in one's life where their more immature priorities and decision-makings tend to steer them towards the the hottest and flashiest newest high-tech stuff was pretty eye-opening for me at a young age. It was a good experience knowing that some dusty old hand-me-downs that looked an entire dimension removed from what games were cool at the current time, I think kind of helped me in a way appreciate stuff more abstract or historically or uh, on on their own merits rather than in the heat of the moment. I I had a childhood where I got to play through a lot of the early stages of gaming's franchises without actually having to... (laughs) to have been around there during those years themselves. Like I was playing the first Zelda games and the first Mario games and the first Resident Evil games pretty comfortably the way they were intended to, just about 10 years removed off from from when you're intended to.
0: So even from that start, even if by pure accident, you you had the benefit of playing these things in the order they were released, rather than the experience that many of us had, of discovering these franchises modernly, and then just trying to discover how they got started. You you played it without the context of the future entries, right? Right, right. Were any of your friends playing any other modern entries? Did that ever, like, pike your curiosity about what was happening <laughs> over the technological fence, so to speak?
1: Yeah. I... I, <laughs> I don't know how unique of an answer it is, but the the demographics that you're going to be interviewing here, people who were growing up during what, in retrospect, in the, this horrible year of 2020, looks like a, a historical period of a technological boom. There was a lot going on with the internet at the time. Those were the decades when, or rather the decade when... Uh, Computers and the internet became mainstream household devices that were were a common part of everyone's everyday lives. So there was a lot of computer skills to learn with video games. It was great for childhood literacy because because you had to read and and do math to play games back then. <laughs> and I do wonder what I would not have learned had I gotten into gaming during an era where... Some more complicated stuff that you can do on your user interface as a user, like like modding, basically. I I do wonder if I might have learned less skills by getting into gaming as a kid during a time nowadays where modding is not as accessible to you as a child. And I also wonder if I missed out on some instinctive formative coding experience that kids who grew up in the eighties got when you had to interface with your computer all in, in command lines and, and text-based logic that's, that's something I didn't grow up in that kids today especially don't grow up with.
0: However, you, you mentioned mods as a, as a formative experience that a lot of people later just didn't have access to. Yes. So was that something, because you mentioned the, th- that you started from the NES, but that means that at some point you jumped to like the PC or some platform where that was possible. When did that happen?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, to, uh, when I had money. When (laughs) after I had my first teenager job and had a, um, a lump of money saved up during the summer from one of my high school jobs, I spent a bunch of it on a gaming PC that I was upgrading every single presidential term since up until I want to say four years ago. Wow. From the time when I was 16 to 24 ish. I was cannibalizing the same parts from that high school job when I first bought my uh, first big expensive fancy gaming PC.
0: Is is this a... What's the name of this mental exercise? Is this a, a sales chip sort of thing? where you have replaced so many individual components that you're not sure if anything from the original PC lives in there?
1: It's the spirit of the original (laughs) PC that lives. That has accompanied me from house to house and job to job across all these years, regardless of whether or not the actual plastic or the metal, the spirit inside of them that has been carried with me all these years. (laughs) I think as of right now, the one and only piece of machinery in the And this does make the computer that I'm talking to you on the descendant of that computer. The uh, TV capture card that's inside of it is the same one I had in high school.
0: Why did you buy a, a TV capture card for your high school PC?
1: I'm trying to remember. Okay, it was because I wanted to use my television as my second monitor because I didn't want to spend money on a second monitor because I was still in high school. So instead, what I did was I, I bought the hardware that converts a um, computer's video cable output at the time over to a TV and then bought a TV capture card so that I could plug the cable uh, television service coming from Comcast into that and watch TV on a TV that was being used as a computer monitor.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. That's a hack. I love it.
1: Yeah, that was my double monitor solution for as, as an impoverished high schooler with, with only only part-time theater cleanup job money.
0: Did any of your passion for gaming affected your high school years in other ways? Were you... Oh, yeah, they were terrible. (laughs) Please, tell me more. No. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned how access to the internet was a thing for a lot of other people finding a different entryway for gaming. However, you you mentioned how quickly you sort of jumped to a PC... uh, gaming environment and how that became like a center field of a lot of what you do to the point that you carried this PC for you, with you for many years which makes me wonder like for for as you say, for a lot of folks in, in certain ages that I will probably interview in this podcast, like the internet is probably a, a thing that has been present for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. But like I can remember the exact moment when I was, I don't know, maybe fourteen when I got my first internet access and how transformative that felt. Did you have an experience like that? Like do you remember when like the internet came into your life? God, yes. It was it was the the beginning of the end. <laughs>
1: It was all over from there. The, uh, I'm shuddering at the thought of how differently my childhood would have gone had I not been left to my own devices in a room with the internet at a very young age. I want to say like 12 or 13. My My mom bought a new computer and let me loose on it and uh, spent some, a good chunk of money on it in the hopes that it would be incorporated into my education and my upbringing. And that was certainly the truth. But man, that taught me not to leave my kids alone in a room with an internet at the age of 12.
0: <laughs> the more things change.
1: Uh, the, more, the more things change, the more the experience of exposing a child to... horrific imagery and and discussions and now in in the scope of the political awareness exposing children to political ideologies and unfiltered extremism at a very young age might, might might not have been the best
0: mentioning entering into political ideologies in a young age in a completely related topic did you start engaging with gaming communities at that age
1: Yes, right (laughs) from day one. Gaming was the thing that was uh, my, my biggest passion in life as a child. Earlier you were talking about how it was incorporated into high school and that basically in, in so many ways meant that I was engaging with my friends who were into gaming, which filter them down by a lot. I spent a lot of my time in very socially isolating experiences in, in high school. I, I was one of the kids who ate their lunches in the library instead of at a table with other kids. Friendship came and went over the years, but um definitely had, had a rockier start during my more awkward teenager years than in the later ones. But I was using all that time and all that energy for internet friendships and computer hobbies and computer skills.
0: You're in good company because this all sounds very, very familiar to my own experiences.
1: Yeah. And and I believe that social skills are something that you grind away at and level up and get better at with, with experience, like most other skills in life. And I was growing up as an only child with divorced parents. And a lot of the energy and skills and worldview on life that I think got served to me in my formative years were ones that were more isolating than what kids nowadays are going to be getting. The internet is a, in name at least, more quote-unquote social place the parents and, and the cool kids know what it is now too. So nerdier kids are probably gonna have an easier time talking with people about it. And I I'm 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 a little overwhelmed when I think about that. Like how much of, of the social life of my childhood was determined by the decades in which it happened to be taking place, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that I completely feel you. I remember I remember the exact moment the internet started to become a thing that was more mainstream. And I still remember my years as a, as a high schooler when mm-hmm. saying something like, oh no, I just spend a lot of time on the internet will be characterized as a very st- specific type of person. And that was like one of the people that I was. And oh, just, you don't really know me, my real personalities on the internet yeah. or something. Like that was uh, at least for me and my experience, that was before Facebook. Like Facebook, that that's what, what ruined that for me. (laughs) That's when it became mainstream in my circles.
1: I want to say Facebook is when all the people discovered the internet, yes.
0: (laughs) So in those early days when it was a more, um, let's say, close-knit community of geeks that tended to be the ones that roam the internet, you mentioned mods. So I'm interested, what sort of games back then were you modding and what sort of, what did that experience teach you
1: quake 3 and unreal engine 1 games based on uh, some some yeah <laughs> high quality texas technology yeah i i did a lot of modding for jedi knight 2 jedi outcast and jedi academy and medal of honor allied assault all of which use the same engine and the same tools which made it quite convenient to hop in from one program to another. Going through that experience teaches you some game design principles. It teaches you some fundamental limits of the technology, like what exactly, in in more layman's terms, a polygon and a texture are, why... More and more of those tend to slow games down the more of them that are on the screen. What sort of tricks game developers use to hide stuff that's not rendered on the screen. Nowadays, the technology and the tools are so, so different. But I'm so glad that like 20-ish years ago, I was able to get that experience as a teenager where I could download what was pretty close to the professional game development suite for free in my home as a dumbass 15, 16-year-old kid doing... What felt at that age like a very adult job and a very adult software suite it's it's funny when I think about it in retrospect but just um the complexity of of what a game engine tool set looks like when it's on your screen is is a very impressive image when <laughs> when you are that age it it feels like a very grown up program when you have a uh, software development suite up on your screen instead of a game that has a the wireframe preview windows with blueprints and buttons absolutely everywhere. And it looks all no-nonsense and serious.
0: This already started giving you an appreciation for some of the finer details of how games were made. Yeah. Because at, le- at least, for example, for me, exploring those sort of mods, especially at that time, was... a uh, um, you don't really appreciate the work of a really good level designer as a kid until you play like a really bad game designed by no one, someone that doesn't yes. really understand what they're doing. Did you have like a similar experience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and once you start going into game development or mod making yourself, it completely changes your perspective on even when you play games, like you start spotting the tricks, you start thinking in the back of your heads. Well, at least what, what I love thinking in the back of my heads is, oh my God, how did they do that? Um, in a lot of ways, it makes a lot of game moments more impressive when you can recognize the engineering trickery, the artistry, the ingenuity that goes into a lot of games sometimes. And I would hope it would also help with uh, with, with, with some empathy and understanding our, our, our fellow humans better. There's this famous screenshot of um, Super Mario Galaxy 2 running in an emulator. And the camera clips behind a house where there's a sign that was placed inside the house that has a little bit of dialogue box that says on this sign that the door is locked. But the player is not going to be able to see this sign. It's placed just behind the door. It's, It's a trick. And... Gamers on the internet tend to be so negative and judgmental that I would imagine that that would be one of the most controversial argumentative screenshots of the past decade in art, you know? Yeah. Between the gamers arguing about whether or not the trick that the developer employed was clever... And and good or a hack and smart or yeah a lazy <laughs> piece of shit hack who um were just taking s- cut cutting corners and taking shortcuts for what should simulate the experience of inferring information from looking at a locked door instead of activating a sign that triggers a dialogue box hidden behind the locked door.
0: <laughs> yeah, a friend put it to me this way that he he thought. The first time he played something like Half-Life, he thought, wow, this game is a masterpiece. It's so well done. Until he started opening it up to to build like uh, like mods. Mm-hmm. And he started going, oh my god.
1: And you see the duct tape hidden all throughout the yeah, maps. Exactly.
0: Yeah, you, you see the duct
1: tape. How many insta-kill, dangerous, like one-hit KO danger zones you might have walked past that you never noticed that got slipped in there accidentally?
0: I can start seeing how that would shape your view on how to examine games. Now back then it was a very different internet and there wasn't anything even, well, there wasn't anything even comparable to what we modernly conceive as YouTube. However, there was content, there there were blogs, there were some form of live streaming, there was the birth of some form of of eSports. Did you ever follow any of that? Or did you ever thought about participating in any of that? Oh,
1: hell yeah. I watched a news report on it on 60 Minutes with my mom. <laughs> I remember when uh, Fatality was was making a name for himself in the uh, hot competitive painkiller circuit. Wow. It's so weird to think about how time feels. I don't know if it's because I'm older or if it's because how the history is gone or how the technology is gone. but. The gap between Painkiller coming out in 2003 and esports getting super duper serious with League of Legends becoming super duper popular, I want to say 2013, what is that? Seven years since then, and it it doesn't feel like it at all. Come to think of it, let's re- disregard everything I just said because it felt a lot faster in retrospect than than I think it would have in the moment because 10 years is still a pretty long time. The point I was trying to get to doesn't make a whole lot more sense now that I'm doubting myself and thinking it through in my head. <laughs>
0: No, but I I know what you mean, like thinking back on a lot of those times and how gaming communities were built around those times feels, it, it, it could be like a decade and a half ago, but when you talk about it, it feels like ancient history because things have changed so dramatically, so inconceivably since then.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that that always trips me up when remembering it is just how much the world we live in has changed over the past 10 years, but how 10 years ago the fake digital fiction of games seemed to be changing faster than it does nowadays. And I think that's what tripped up my memory just then, is that... There was about 10 years between someone like Fatality doing some cool merch deals and making some cool million or two with Painkiller. And then 10 years later, there's a hell of a lot of professional gamers making a hell of a lot of millions of dollars out of games like um, Counter Strike and, and Overwatch that don't necessarily look and feel that fundamentally different from Painkiller in 2003. Like Counter Strike is ancient ca- by video game years counter-strike yeah it is started out in in 99 and and nowadays i i don't know if the esports scene is as strong as it was say five years ago but if it's still going strong then i feel like that still points to some kind of fear and a lot of um game economies of, of of changing things as rapidly as they were changing in the 90s when when things were a little more loose and informalized and it was considered more of an industry making toys than than a art medium making art or a sports league
0: yep absolutely like the, the there's a period of time in my mind it's like called the transition from like the Nintendo 64 to the GameCube where like things yeah. were changing so rapidly and and new yeah. weird things were coming out so quickly that like the the basis for the industry were being set still. And
1: I'm, I'm happy that I got into modding around the turn of the millennium because that also showed me just how different it was making games in 3D versus in 2D. How what you're looking at on the screen is fundamentally different. How like using a mouse or an analog stick are connected to that need to be able to navigate some depth to the screen. And that's... That's something that I don't think I've felt since then up until VR got got big around 2015 to 16. Yeah. And even then, it still isn't setting the world on fire for perfectly understandable reasons. You know, the millennial doomer experience is growing up in this incredibly optimistic post-Cold War tech boom, internet boom era, and then seeing things steadily slow down and complicate and also iterate and innovate less as as time seems to have gone on and playing VR in 2015 was the first time I remember feeling like a kid in the 1996 playing a 3D game for the first time going from 2D to 3D was such a huge leap that I don't know if anything is compared since besides VR which yeah. has a validly long list of reasons as to why it's not going to set the world on fire as much as the switch from 2D to 3D did.
0: So um, around the time, around the, the switch from 2D to 3D, were you thinking already about writing about video games, about like formalizing mm-hmm. your thoughts in some form back then? Because I know for conversations we have had in the past that, that you studied uh, journalism, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out is th- if this was like a, a cause or effect kind of thing for your passion for communicating these things.
1: I really, really liked video games, and so I was uh, given by my parents subscriptions to video game magazines, oh. and so I spent a good chunk of my childhood reading through video game magazines day after day. I I had a couple coming into my mom's house and a couple coming into my dad's house, and every time I was at either one of those, I never was lacking anything to read, and yeah, is it cause or effect? Did I grow up wanting to be a game journalist from that? Or would I have grown up wanting to be a game journalist because I really like video games anyway? Well, what had happened was that I grew up wanting to be a journalist. I grew up really, really liking reading and writing. And if I hadn't been left alone in a room with video games and a pat stacks upon stacks of gaming magazines, I got to wonder what other big thing I might have grown up really getting into.
0: Fair, fair enough.
1: Like, like the, uh, the the trinkets that my parents left around for me as a child seem to have have stuck into adulthood.
0: Oh, absolutely! Do you remember what was your decision process when when deciding what to major on or what to do with your university <laughs> life?
1: Yeah, I do. It's real, real embarrassing. You ready?
0: Ready as I will ever be.
1: Gerstman Gate. Are you serious? I'm damn serious. Two thousand seven. I I grew up with uh. Reading video game magazines and websites and playing games all the time, and that fostered an interest in writing and the news and media. And when I saw game journalism, like, kind of, not necessarily formalize itself as a concept, but defend itself as a concept, I started thinking, huh, okay, maybe there's an actual practice here.
0: For those at home that have no idea what we're talking about, this refers to Jeff Gersman. He is a video game journalist that worked in GameSpot in 2007 and he was tasked with writing a review for uh, Kanan Lynch and he gave it a 6 out of 10. Uh, problem is that the publisher for this game, ADOS Interactive, had spent a lot of money in publicity for this game on the GameSpot website. In fact, I remember that they had changed the entire layout, there was it was inescapable. You couldn't get anywhere on the website we have seen ads for this game and so since he gave the game a very critical review he was almost immediately fired with no explanation and it was very obvious to everyone that he was fired because he gave the game a bad review and this created one of the first major internet controversies about how video game journalism should not have to depend about the economic interests of the site and this was very unusual back then it was one of the first times this became a large internet conversation right and you know nobody can fault a website for the ad revenues that it generates from its sponsors i mean we get that. That's how they exist, but the problem occurs when companies get paid to advertise the same products they're supposed to be reviewing, of course, and Mike I mean how can people expect any objectivity when when sponsors are, are paying people salaries here? Well yeah I mean if you that. got giant you've reskinned a site with giant skyscraper yeah. ads and the you know the quote on the page is basically don't buy this game and
1: I then mean, it was pulled down that night yeah it just it was that's that's what I mean by bad timing okay so
0: so some mismanagement as well
1: if the Game journalists who were protesting in the streets after Gerstmann got fired from GameSpot for giving Kane and Lynch a 7 out of 10, then maybe there's an actual body of values and worth and meaning to, to something that had previously struck me as a... Uh, a a less important way to express oneself in writing. Like, like Gate, as I recall growing up as a teenager at the time felt like the first moment that game journalism became serious business beyond the money, you know? Like, that's the first time there was some principles behind it that it felt like I had something to look up to and be inspired by from that fiasco.
0: That's a moment that in your mind, it switched from being a purely sort of entertainment reporting to like, quote unquote, real journalism.
1: Yeah, because if it was purely entertainment reporting, and it was just about the money and nothing else, then it would not have been as big an emotional hit to the community to have one of their big reviewers get fired for a controversial score. And one of the things that made it extra obvious is that the game in question was Kane and Lynch, a fairly okay shooter that people don't exactly remember super fondly for how, how fun it was to play. There's, there were some interesting things going on with the characters, but that came shortly after he gave a review on a Zelda game that he gave an 8.8 of on and that that blew up the fan base and the community and the internet and they they really really hated on him for a while for that but in my mind that
0: was the twilight princess one wasn't it yeah god i remember when i went where i was sitting when i read
1: that review in my mind, I was of an age where I was a stupid teenager who was disappointed by the 8.8 Twilight Princess review, but then played the game and was kind of disappointed by it in general. <laughs> yeah. And then a few, like like a year or two later, I, I, I had turned 16 or something. I had like worked a hard day of work and I was like starting to piece together why, what certain elements of my emotional priorities were less big of a deal than I thought they were before. And then a year after that was when Gate itself had happened, and I was already going to high school and working on the school paper, and I was like, okay, okay, maybe if people care this much about game journalism, I should actually commit to it and see what happens professionally. So I went to college for journalism, I customized and developed my skills even as far back as high school for journalism, but the intention the whole time was to figure out a way to, to... Regularly write about video games and do journalism about about video games, particularly.
0: And after university, how did that go?
1: <laughs> so I interned at a newspaper. I uh, freelanced for a newspaper. I got published at a newspaper. I I did a cross-country bicycle tour where every single day I wrote 300 to 1,000 words about weird towns I was stopping in along the way. When I was working at the newspaper, I was, like, covering the Occupy protests and, uh, transportation beats that were happening, but in the years out of out of college what i absolutely positively noticed and what i was pretty much told to expect from a bunch of statistics classes was that the kids who were getting better connections were the kids who were getting better jobs and i was not getting any kind of you know normal middle class be able to buy a house with it job with uh A livable salary that could pay a mortgage rather than a rent. That could have a retirement fund rather than just pay for your survival. That was not happening a good like two years after graduation. The advice that I kept hearing was to do the job before you get the job. And I was applying to IGN, GameSpot, and all these other places. I was applying to local papers in the city. I was applying to other places in in other states. I went to New York and walked into the New York Times office. And like handed a draft for a uh, piece about the bicycle trip to the front desk. And just none of that was, I realized, ever going to fizzle out. So to do the job before you get the job, I started the YouTube channel and hammered away at that long enough for it to turn a profit. I very shortly got a media job at a TV station after beginning the channel. But then a year and a half down the road, the channel started making enough money to compete with that stuff. And then three years down the road, the channel started making money that was comparable to what I would have wanted to got out of the traditional rat race system that's going away. The, the bicycle across the country, the make way better grades than everyone else in your class, the bicycle across the country and write about it every single day, the, the show up to the New York Times offices of your dream job companies and submit your resume and paperwork to them in person. That whole rat race is something that absolutely positively did not pan out for me. And I feel <laughs> lucky that I decided to get into YouTubing when I did and that it worked out as well as it did because i feel like my story and the example of my work is 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 kind of kind of proof of just how nepotistic and insidery priority the uh traditional channels of hr and employment in our societies really are the internet has opened people's minds to how much talent is being wasted in the world because that talent happens to grow up in a city or or be born to a pair of parents who who aren't going to get them those connections that would have typically (laughs) rose the cream of of the crop to the top.
0: Imagine being born in South America. I get you. Uh, I get you (laughs) completely. Mm -hmm. When you present yourself to someone new, when you enter into a conversation and the question of what do you do for a living? What do you work on? What's your job? Inevitably comes up. uh, What's your go-to answer?
1: I don't have an easy go-to answer. I have a reluctant answer. I eventually just reluctantly will tell them I'm a YouTuber. I I say reluctantly because over the past few years, the reputation for it has kind of been pretty shaky. And a lot of people still don't know what that is.
0: When you're talking to someone who is like more knowledgeable of what YouTube is and a little bit about the world of gaming, how do you describe your own channel?
1: I would describe it as video essays and and gaming journalism and i typically do have to like tack on some some qualifiers to that and say that it's uh one of the better ones that probably doesn't look like a typical example of either of those two above that you've seen before. <laughs> I'll clarify that that i like to take an an academic well-researched stance that i like to cover scandals in the industry about workers being exploited or, or companies being up to no good, or that I will use video games as a springboard to launch into educational topics related to to what's going on with, with the video game.
0: Backing up a little bit, because I find this super interesting that, that sort of doing the YouTube channel was your attempt at doing the job before getting the job. But at that point, you knew what youtube channel what youtube was and the idea that one can do video essays in youtube But those must have come from somewhere. So as a consumer of content, I'm kinda curious of where that started, like what what, what was the inspiration for that sort of style that you wanted to try and emulate?
1: The biggest inspiration was Chris Franklin's errant signal channel. With modern game consoles, and to some extent PCs, we've basically handcrafted machines that are fantastic at playing games about moving through and interacting with 2D and 3D worlds to the exclusion of everything else. From their inputs to their outputs, GPUs to joypads, these things are Designed to simulate
0: spaces
1: that were um, very academically sourced, academically minded, very well written video essays on um, things that, that the more collegiate mind is going to be concerned about when playing video games and talking about video games about the theming, the set dressing, the, the subtleties that having military themed shooter might be imposing on the character that uh, teenage George might never have, have thought about. There was also a series by Raptor called Sequelitis.
0: Oh boy, yeah. Before
1: 1987, when Mega Man came out, it was hard for a lot of game designers to understand what games needed to engross a player. You know, to, to carry you along. To keep you wanting to play their game about squares. There really wasn't, like, a book written on game design, and oftentimes designers wrote books on why their game was fun. Yeah, where, um... Clever clever animation, uh, tried and true ego raptor internet humor, and a lot of at the time unknown principles from game design books were being applied into into fun videos. That was a big inspiration as well. The other, the other big inspiration was John Charon.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, back before things.
1: Live action video essays with With an eye for embracing the limitations of one's production values when making videos at home for YouTube rather than the internet and having the kind of knowing self-aware, self-deprecating sense of humor needed to pull that off was, I think, another another ingredient in that soup.
0: How did the format of the channel evolve? because i if I remember correctly, like I'm familiar with maybe your channel up to like four four or five years ago. But looking at like the earliest stuff, Uh, you had a co-host, I think, so uh, question one would be like, how did that format evolve and why did it evolve the way it did? And the second is, is there like one, did the channel just grew very slowly and started getting to that place organically? Or were there moments of someone sharing your content or your content trending somewhere else that that you felt were transformative towards the direction of your growth and the sort of things you did?
1: It was the moments. It was not a slow growth. It spiked and plateaued and spiked and plateaued and spiked and plateaued. The first big spike came from Errant Signal sharing. Second big spike came, and this was the big spike that put me on the map, came from Total Biscuit Sharing. A few years down the road, there was a big spike when I was covering the Konami and and Kojima breakup, and uh, after Konami themselves issued a takedown notice on me publishing an interview they didn't like, using 30 seconds of gameplay footage that they claimed copyright ownership of, that made the rounds on all the big game news websites. And that spike was absolutely permanent. It was a good <laughs> four years into the process, but after that spike, I think I'm good. <laughs> it was a long uphill rocky climb before then, but after that I I could still change jobs but keep the channel around and it would still get views. The standard body of viewers who come back again and again and again and provide some sort of baseline of, of financial security here has not gone away since then. That was a little fluctuating before before the Kojima versus Konami fiasco. But after the Kojima versus Konami fiasco, there's like for sure at least going to be a good 50,000, 70,000 people who will watch a video of me just just uploading a blank piece of paper even.
0: That's when you had a clear cut core audience.
1: Yes, the 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 glorious 4 months in 2015 when when I was covering konami gradually pushing out kojima's production team from from their publisher was was when the super bunny hop vision was at its most crystal clear
0: never thought i will say this but thanks Konami. did that particular moment sort of reinforce your idea that that's the direction because as time goes on i can't help but notice that while you do reviews? You like to focus either on the more in-depth analysis of things, or mm-hmm. as you mentioned before, the uh, the controversies of the industries. And when I mean the controversies of the industries, not in a way what a, a lot of mainstream creators do, which is like talking about like outrage or something, but rather a good example will be um, your video of, of your analysis of how or why Telltale went broke like and and how that affected the workers was that direction like cemented because of that reaction from konami them coming after you made you feel like that was the journalism the hard journalism you were wanting to chase from the first moment
1: exactly exactly one of the biggest problems with doing video game journalism is that a lot of the scoops you're gonna hear are not really that big of a deal one of the biggest complaints from, from the gamers when I was growing up was that video game journalism was so placid. It was pushovery. It was um, entertainment updates from the entertainment industry being processed through, through very young teams of, of very, very young writers who likely didn't stick with the job for too very long at these magazines. When game journalism transitioned over to the internet, I I feel like a lot of the industry started (laughs) concentrating around the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Real journalism grads started getting hired up. Uh, Broadcast media companies started pouring venture capital into game websites instead of uh, magazine companies. Like GameSpot is paid for by CBS, right? Right. And now... There's a even more decentralized industry of not necessarily journalism grads, but economics grads and and, and sociology grads, and uh, also the, the technology engineering grads who are making content that focuses on their highly specialized academic specializations. It's an extremely different environment from the one that I was growing up in. And I think it's a better one. But I also constantly worry about how sustainable it's going to be in the long term. There's ultimately the problem of how every, every single kid in the world wants to grow up being a, a crowdfunded content producer of covering the content that they are passionate for that makes their lives meaningful and tolerable and enjoyable.
0: So on that on that topic about sustainability, I know you already give a, a rough timeline, but I just I want to zero in on the moment when you actually said, hey, uh, I'm going to start trying to apply for other journalistic jobs and and just put all my effort into the channel. Was that before or after the Konami scandal? Before. Interesting. So So you were already committed to this direction before that big bump. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was a workaholic from 2012 to to 16 ish um i i did not sleep a lot i i worked three jobs a lot of uh, sacrifices were made in those years for for the channel because i felt at the time that that was where my future was going to be
0: do you feel that right now you have reached a point in your life as a creator? Where you're in a more comfortable position, where you're not, do do you see those moments of extreme crunch and work as sort of the dark days of bunny hop and right now as a more desirable position to be in? Or do you still see yourself as climbing that, that mountain?
1: still climbing <laughs> and as a matter of fact i would regard the current era as the darker days of bunny hop because the videos are coming out less than they used to i was a workaholic when i was younger and i was i was destroying myself to get videos out every week but that manifests into more views a more active community and my name showing up and in, in more news news articles out there and i tend to do really, really long videos about really niche historical topics now that don't have that same kind of pull. This format is going to change eventually. There's there's some exciting changes I'm making to my podcast by the end of the week from when we're recording this. And uh, I'm still not out of ideas.
0: What do you see as the the future for you as a creator? Because you mentioned the podcast, which is something that you're clearly putting a lot of energy into. As you have mentioned, you have been focusing on a lot of more specific niche topics that honestly no one else is, is covering. Uh, do you see this direction as the future of your work and your work as a journalist? Or do you envision yourself changing dynamic direction again in a couple of years?
1: I think I'm going to have to change direction every couple of years or go crazy. <laughs> like, um, I want to think of myself as doing videos that are in more of a documentary style now than in a more normal YouTube video style I was doing five years ago, because doing the same thing week after week after week for five years on end in the same chair and the same software and the same repetitions, the same clicks of the same mouse that will eventually drive you mad. I don't know if I'm going to stick with video games forever, but I'm really, really happy that I did not stick with video game reviews forever because I quite enjoy making more documentary style educational programming than the video where I try to answer a utilitarian practical or less important question of, of whether or not a game is worth 60 bucks (laughs) (sighs) because they're never not just wait three months guys. Oh my God. Anyways, anyways, (laughs) a lot of what I think came out just then was noticing after all these years that the same messages of my videos are going to be the same stuff. The, The fundamental question that a game review is meant to ask is whether or not it's worth the purchase and yet i have never read game reviews for that as my number 1 priority i am more interested in hearing what the art of the world looks like through other people's eyes than i am through what the art of the world is valued at according to the price of a coronavirus vaccine in the world at the time ooh it just seems so dispassionate and alarming and and like a cold wake up call to the world when Whenever I see a comment talking about how how, how reviews are financial advice <laughs> instead of art about art.
0: Yeah. However, there there is something to be said about the fact that in YouTube in the year 2020, a lot of the people still finding traffic that are not like big household names, other people focusing on the and those specific niche topics that other people aren't covering. So in that sense, you might have been a, a pioneer of of what actually ended up being a, basically the growth strategy for a lot of people at this size.
1: I I am flattered. <laughs> I just don't know if I strategize that much myself about it. <laughs> like a lot of times when I'm scheduling out my plan for the month, the end goal is just survival.
0: I think everyone's in survival mode most of the time.
1: Yeah, I I had ambitions a year ago. <laughs> I haven't been in the groove of making long term plans for quite a few years, but at least last year I had some ambitions about what I'd like to be doing in ten years. And now, now that it's twenty twenty, I don't know if the future can be can be predicted with that much assurance anymore.
0: Credit where credit is due. No one. Uh, after this year can can say how like three months in the future is going to look, let let alone 10 years. What is it about podcasting that has captured your interest in such a way?
1: I want to say the relationships and the chemistry between the hosts. Now now that we are in 2020 mm-hmm. and dealing with the world falling apart and in quarantines and lockdowns and social distancing and the, the incredibly isolating experience that is locking oneself in, in one's home forever, I've gained a new appreciation for my co-hosts, Matt and Liam. Like out of all the people I talk to week after week these days, I, I get on the phone with my mom. Like sometimes I talk to one or two old friends on discord but they are really the only regular outlet i've had in a while this year for actual friendship social interaction like a lot of um people listen to it for a parasocial relationship with the hosts and what happened to me this year was that i'm (laughs) i'm totally with them like me and uh matt and liam live thousands of miles away from each other but my god i would i would go I would die from loneliness if I couldn't talk to them every single week these days they are they are saving my brain over the lockdowns
0: I wonder if that's if that's also the feeling that a lot of the audience is getting because I sure yeah. am consuming way more podcasts right now that I was consuming before this
1: Yeah it's it's funny numbers have been up for YouTube I believe since the pandemic and down for podcasts per show but I think overall listenership of podcasts have gone up which shows people splintering off into their, their favorite niches and their favorite specialists. I think it's a pretty shared experience that we're all going through in terms of appreciating our online connections more than ever. And that's what, honestly, what I think I'm in, in it for right now is, is preserving my, <laughs> humans are social animals, right? Preserving my friendships with them so I don't go insane myself.
0: Would you have any advice, any words of wisdom to give anyone trying to make a creator career in this godforsaken year Mm -hmm. of 2020?
1: Oh, yeah. Everyone's going to be starting up their OnlyFans this year, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Don't do your professional work in your bedroom any longer than you have to. If you associate the place in your house that you do your work at with the place in your house you do your relaxation with... Your professional and personal identities are going to merge and drive you crazy. It's brain poison. For starters, you'll slack off at your work. For seconders, you'll freak out and stress out during your sleep. And one of the toughest things about being a self-employed creator on the internet is that you have to make your own work schedule and walking to a different place, even if it's just a different room in the same house or just a dead desk at the kitchen or something just any any kind of different room keep it away from your bedroom it's such a classic picture perfect image of of a youtuber if you open up the the dictionary and flip to to what picture they have next to a youtuber it's someone with the camera in their bedroom but as after doing this for so many years i'm starting starting to wonder if all those bedrooms are are not their real bedrooms the set with, with some stuffed animals and a pillow in the background, that's not a bedroom. You can tell when, when a YouTuber is really doing it out of their real bedroom. <laughs> and those are probably the crazy ones.
0: And those are probably the crazy ones, yep. Thank you for this, George. It has been definitely a journey that went in a direction that I did not expect nor plan. And I think that makes it way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. So uh, thank you very much for that.
1: Thanks you <laughs>